Hi everyone, this is Nikki Gamer for Catholic Relief Services. And welcome back to Behind the Story, a podcast series that invites you to celebrate the people behind 75 years of our history, the people we serve, our partners, our staff, and especially the supporters like you who make our work possible. In our last episode, we spoke to Natalie and Dave Perino, both former CRS staff, about the Rwandan genocide that shocked the world in April of 1994 and changed the way we approach our programs in the midst of conflict and cultural tensions. But today, we'll be talking about a time less than 20 years ago when people said it was just too expensive, too risky, too hard to stem the deadly tide of HIV and AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa. They said it couldn't be done, but of course they were wrong. We'll be talking to Michelle Bromelsick, CRS's Vice President of Overseas Operations, and Dr. Carl Stecker, CRS Senior Technical Advisor for HIV and Global Health, both of whom were on the front lines of our HIV work and the impact it had on millions of people. Michelle, Dr. Stecker, thank you so much for being with us and for taking time to tell this important story. Well, thank you, Nikki. I'm really excited to be here. And we've got some great stories we want to tell you. All right, so we have a lot to cover here, but I want to start with you, Michelle. Can you take us back in time to sub-Saharan Africa as we were entering into our HIV work? And can you paint us a picture of what it was like in one of the hardest-hit countries like Zambia? Uh, thank you, Nikki. My own story and my career with CRS intersected the HIV crisis in the year of 2001. And that was when I moved my husband and my two-year-old daughter from Indonesia, where I was working for CRS, and I had my first job as country representative in Zambia. And actually, CRS had just opened our office there, and I had to learn um, on the ground what was going on. And really, that was an experience of HIV. Maybe to connect the dots between what I saw and what the statistics were at the time, if you can imagine in Zambia, which had a population of 12 million about that time, it's a very large country. It's twice the size of the state of California. Oh, wow. So they had every month 10,000 people dying from HIV. So that was like a 747 crashing every day in that country, every day of the year, that entire year, which led to 120,000 people died that year. We had about seven staff. Two of us were American and the other five were Zambian. And every week, someone on that team had a significant family member, a parent, uh, a spouse, uh, a, a sibling die. So they were going to significant funerals every week. So in the first year, I ended up attending a funeral. There were a row of people digging graves, and the grave diggers finished a row of graves 12 wide. So the funerals would all start simultaneously at those 12 graves, and they were digging another 12. And this was happening in three or four parts of the same cemetery that entire day. So one of the reasons so many people were dying is there was no drugs. That means basically you're just doing care for the sick. And the Catholic Church was really at the forefront, was help people die with dignity. You're trying to pray with them, but you couldn't offer them anything other than death. What does that mean when someone is diagnosed back in 2001? What did that mean for him or her? 
I lived and worked in Cameroon and the Central African Republic for almost 20 years. And starting in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, my wife and I, both as registered nurses, worked as uh, missionaries in healthcare. In the early 2000s, I come to CRS in 2002 and begin work providing um, technical assistance to country programs who are struggling, as Michelle uh, described, how do we deal with HIV? And I specifically remember uh, arriving in Entebbe in Uganda, and there's about a 40-minute drive from Entebbe to Kampala, the capital, where the CRS office was. All along the way were furniture makers making coffins. Um, big billboards, scary billboards, um, about HIV kills. You say you go into a clinic back then and you get your blood test and you're told, yes, you have HIV. How long from that point to developing full-blown AIDS to passing away from this disease? Test kits didn't become available until in the late 90s and available in Africa until much after that. So you went through everything. It's not a cold, it's not the flu, it's not just diarrhea, it's not amoebic dysentery. And then you figured out with the combination of many different illnesses, oh, this is AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, um, that this person must be HIV positive. So then you began to treat what illness you could treat, but then you cared for the person because eventually they were gonna die. But there was no cure for HIV. There's no vaccine for HIV, and so this was just hospice care, uh, helping people to die with dignity. So we think of HIV here in the U.S. nowadays as chronic, but it's treatable. But back then, it was really a death sentence. And, and people would try so hard to do the few things they could to help their family. And so one thing they would do, um, Carl mentioned that you'd saw, see all these coffin makers. It really was the best income generating activity you could support people to do, which is, which is horrific because everyone was dying. But people would go out because they didn't want to pauper their family and they would buy their coffin ahead of time and they would literally sleep on top of it because that was the only piece of furniture they would have left. They knew if they didn't, the cost to the family would be devastation beyond just the loss of that person's life. What did HIV do to families and then communities? Because I read that once someone was diagnosed, they were literally ostracized or um, isolated. Yeah, so we saw shame, uh, discrimination, stigma. Um, we were often within our programs uh, trying to get across the message that the only way that you can get HIV is exchange of bodily fluids. At one point in time in the early 2000s, the 10 countries with the most orphans and vulnerable children in the world were in Africa. All 10 of them having more than a million children that were orphaned. So Michelle, can you talk for a minute about what that does to an economy or even an entire country? So we think in our head that this was mostly poor people, and of course there were many poor people who had HIV, but really the drivers, the people who were moving around and had multiple partners or were going to school and contracted HIV while they were in school, were people who were getting education. This destructive disease in and of itself would have been enough, right, to just 
you know, take apart families, take apart culture and society. But on top of that, if you layer the stigma that Carl was speaking of, you know, which grew out of the fact that in the U.S., HIV in the beginning was passed mostly through homosexual contact. So that wasn't true in Africa. One of the things that for me was the most heartbreaking was building on what Carl said about the million orphans. You know, the aunts, the uncles, the parents, and sometimes even the grandparents were dying. You ended up with child-headed households, usually a teenager, caring for their siblings. And I visited many of these households where you would have a 13 or 14-year-old taking care of a two-year-old, trying to get the two-year-old to hospital because they kept getting sick. So that sense of the burden and the breakdown of what we even consider to be a family and the care of a family wasn't even happening at the height of the crisis. Wow, that's a pretty dire picture. Give me the scope. When this was at its worst, what are we talking in terms of number of countries affected and number of people? The height of the, of the epidemic in Africa arrived in the mid-2000s, 2004, 2005, when there were over two million deaths a year from HIV on the African continent, estimated, um, for both of those years each. So four million deaths just in 2004 and 2005. A lot of it was in Southern Africa, Eastern Africa, less so in Central Africa, and even uh, less so in West Africa. Can you tell us, why did HIV spread in this part of the world in particular, and why so rapidly? If someone is HIV positive, and they're driving a truck thousands of kilometers across Africa, and they're stopping multiple times, and they have relationships in those communities, then it spreads, right? So those people in those communities may have relationships. So that's one factor, is the, the trucking routes. The other is that in Southern Africa, you have a lot of mining companies. So you have gold mining, diamond mining. So usually men leave their family in Zimbabwe or Zambia or South Africa, Lesotho, Swaziland, Botswana. They go to the mine and they return home. So while they're away, they have relationships in that town where they're living at the mine. Would you say the Catholic way of approaching HIV, how is that different than what others were doing at the time? I think that the main response before there were drugs was to encourage people to use condoms. And that was something that the Catholic Church did never felt was the right response. We instead added another voice, which is to say, we care about you, we care about your dignity, here are some other options that we want you to think about. Positive living, abstaining, delaying sexual debut, and being faithful. And how do you provide hope? How do you fight the fear? I think that the home-based care was one small way because we could say, we are people who care. We will care to the day you die and beyond. We will care about you. We will care about your family. Let's talk about the turning point in the epidemic. Dr. Stecker, what was the game changer? Oh, it was definitely the announcement at the State of the Union address by President Bush in February of 2003 for the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, what we call PEPFAR. 
which announced $15 billion to work over the next five years, 2004 to 2008, in what they were calling 13 high prevalence or high priority countries. By Thanksgiving Day of 2003, uh, we had the announcements of two uh, large global grant opportunities that were only open to those organizations that could respond in at least three different countries. And then on World AIDS Day, uh, December 1st of 2003, so just less than a week later, the large announcement on the availability of antiretroviral therapy. So when the announcement was made in 2003, we had the availability of a cocktail of drugs and uh, the U.S. had already been treating with three drugs and finding very good results. I think one of our biggest challenges in thinking about providing antiretroviral therapy was that it's not a cure. It's like high blood pressure for which you're taking some medication for the rest of your life. And while there's $15 billion available over the next five years, how are we as Catholic Relief Services involved in HIV in many countries around the world going to start somebody on antiretroviral therapy knowing that the funding might end after five years? We knew that we couldn't meet the criteria on our own and so we had to create a consortium of partners um, at a central level then to uh, propose that we would work in a number of those uh, 13 high priority countries that would become PEPFAR countries. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the obstacles to addressing this epidemic? Like, I would imagine even basic infrastructure like hospitals were not in place in many of these communities. They're not like the hospital that we imagine. They're very modest, you know, maybe around 50 beds. The doctors have no experience with HIV or AIDS. The nursing staff, have to know about how they care for these patients. If you went into a hospital at the beginning of the rollout of treatment and you asked to see their records, they would often tell you they had no records. Or you'd go into their record room and it'd just be stacks of pieces of paper that didn't have a filing system and in treating HIV, you cannot do that. You also have to have a pharmacy that functions. In addition, you had to have a lab that had to run lab tests using the latest technology and the latest laboratory equipment. You'd have to have the support of the government to make sure that all of these pieces came together. There were some hospitals in Zambia that didn't have any electricity or running water. So the fundamental step wasn't, can I get them the lab equipment? It was, can I get them water and electricity so that they can serve all of these hundreds of people who are dying in their community? But it was amazing what that team did. And everyone was there because they really wanted to end AIDS. We had partners on the ground where we knew that there were good, strong hospitals that we could develop, even if they didn't have everything in place. We knew they, we could build their capacity. Because the vision from the beginning of the proposal design was that we wanted to end this project by handing over to local organizations. What was it like to be on the front lines of this epidemic at that time? And then when you're working around the clock trying to build this thing, what was that like for you and even your families? We quickly put together three startup teams 
and went out um, concurrently and it, over a period of three months went to nine countries and made the initial contacts with, or the, the subsequent contacts with all of the in-country partners, with the ministries of health, their national AIDS control councils, with the U.S. government entity that be overseeing our work in the country. We met our targets of putting over 14,000 people on treatment in the first year, which doesn't sound like very much, but to start up in nine countries, really, it was huge. We met our second year targets as well um, and had over 40,000 people on therapy at the end of year two. And then it just exponentially you know, developed after that. Personally and with my family, I was gone almost 70% of the time. Sometimes at the drop of a hat, I remember a Thursday afternoon getting called from the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta saying there's a meeting in South Africa on Monday morning at 9 a.m. You need to be there. Michelle? And I was experiencing this whole rollout from a different seat on the field side of getting the team together there. You're in an environment, as we talked about, of stigma and fear, and yet now, if there's treatment, that's a totally different world. So you started to see people accepting the possibility that there might be light at the end of this tunnel instead of death, right? That there might be life, and that's why you do it. So is there a story that particularly stands out for you about the importance of this project and the real impact it had, or maybe even continues to have? One of the project uh, directors said, I just had a meeting, I need to tell you about it. I went to a community meeting and there was a mother there with her daughter. And the mother's name was Frida and she was dying from AIDS. And her daughter was on her lap and she was called pretty and she said it was true. She was this beautiful, pretty child. And the mother said, I'm gonna die. How is this program going to take care of my child? And that, that sense of like, wow, that's all we can say is we're gonna do our best to help you take care and to have a good death. This was before treatment. And, and then to have that image of that mother who loved her child beyond measure and could only imagine what's going to happen to my child. I don't care about myself. What's gonna to happen to my child? Carl, I wanna to turn to you for a minute. What story drives the impact home? I remember Bridget, uh, came from uh, Zambia. She, um, she had lost her husband uh, to HIV, discovered that she herself was HIV positive, got very thin. We saw a Lazarus effect. And what we mean by that is that people were sometimes literally brought into the hospital or the institution in a wheelbarrow and you would see them up and walking and go back to work. She was a school teacher. She is one of those people that had that experience of the Lazarus effect, of being really literally brought back to her former life. But she continued on to provide uh, home-based care and to be a treatment buddy to other members in her community that were living with HIV, to be an encouragement for them that they needed to take their drugs every day. We brought uh, Bridget over to be a spokesperson for AIDS relief, coming from Zambia, and was here for a month and she went and spoke in several uh, uh, parishes and, and in dioceses at meetings. We also took her down to Washington and introduced her to decision makers of whether PEPFAR would continue or not. 
I would say if I was thinking about the impact and what I'm taking away from this, this experience of working on this amazing um, effort of AIDS relief, I, I feel like at the end of the day, we can imagine the end of AIDS if we treat at least 80% of the people in a country who need treatment. If you get a certain percentage of your population on treatment and virally suppressed, you no longer have an epidemic. And what can we imagine? Africa without AIDS, the world without AIDS. That's possible. They said it couldn't be done. And why don't we believe in an AIDS-free world, even if it's hard, but I think that this is the kind of work that CRS is about, and this is why we should continue to believe that it can be done. It sounds like there's still a lot of work to do. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> Thank you both so much. Thank you, Nikki. It was really good to relive some of that experience. It really was an amazing time, and being in the right place at the right time with the right people and the right organization to lead and do this. It was an amazing thing um, to, to have a role in eradicating AIDS. I'm so happy to have had the opportunity to hear Carl's story and to tell the story of what happened with AIDS Relief at CRS. It is hard to believe, but we've come to the end of our year-long journey celebrating 75 years of CRS history through our Behind the Story podcast series. And I'm truly inspired by all we've learned through 12 podcasts and 75 years of compassion, partnership, and solidarity that define who we all are as part of the CRS family. And I hope you have too. But we're not done yet, not even by a long shot. We have a little surprise for you. We thought, what better way to wrap up a year-long journey through our history than to take a look at what awaits us in the future? So we're putting away our Wayback Time Machine and taking out our crystal ball with an extra podcast. It's a bonus that will feature CRS president and CEO Sean Callahan, and he'll be talking to us about his bold new vision for 2019 and way beyond to create real and lasting change for the world's most vulnerable people. Be sure to check it out on 75.crs.org or search CRS 75th anniversary on iTunes to download all your favorite episodes. And from all of us at CRS, we wish you all a very Merry Christmas and all the best in 2019. And don't forget to keep an eye out for what's next. Thank you.